At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 54 of the Sino-Soviet Alliance, 1950-1960. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. It's imperative for us to review the importance of the alliance between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. The alliance had a long-lasting and deep impact on the Cold War, and not just on the Soviets and Chinese, but also on the Communist bloc in Eastern Europe, the United States, and even Great Britain. Triangular diplomacy of the late Cold War between the United States, the Soviet Union, and China also developed out of this initial alliance. Indeed, the alliance, although short-lived, has an enduring political legacy. Many of the ideas and themes of this episode will seem very familiar to the geopolitics of 2018. China and Russia today have in many ways rebuilt their cooperation since the late 1960s, signing the 1997 Treaty of Good Neighborliness, Cooperation, and Friendship. China has become a major market for Russian natural resources and arms technology, whereas China has become a source of investment in the Russian economy. In 2001, they formed a military pact similar to NATO with other former Soviet republics known as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. The United States, as of this recording, finds itself boxed out of this relationship. Moreover, relations with both Russia and China have deteriorated over the last five years, akin to the U.S., Soviet, and Chinese relations in the 1950s. Indeed, with geopolitics today, as in the 1950s, trade, sanctions, intellectual property, technology transfer, aid, war, and investment were contentious issues not only between the Soviet Union and China, but also between those impacted by the treaty, like Great Britain and the United States. Although the formal Treaty of Friendship and Alliance was signed between China and the Soviet Union in 1950, the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Union dated back some 30 years to 1920, when Soviet Comintern agents traveled to China in order to help form and organize the Chinese Communist Party. The Kremlin for decades exerted considerable influence over the party, encouraging their alliance with the Nationalists in the 1920s. The alliance and the subsequent early civil war between the Nationalists and the Communists ended up being disastrous with the Chinese Communist Party almost being wiped out. By the late 1930s, the party was in the political and literal wilderness of remote China living off handouts from the Soviets. Chinese communist leaders by the late 1930s were aware of the fact that the Soviets weren't providing support out of the kindness of their hearts either. They saw the Chinese Communist Party as a pawn by which they could pursue their own interests in Asia. 
Mao and the Chinese communist leadership, though, were unable to gain greater independence because Moscow still provided the majority of the party's funds. If Mao had challenged the Soviet influence in the party, Soviet cronies within the party would just have replaced him and arrest him. This all changed in 1941 with the Axis invasion of the Soviet Union. Soviet aid dried up, which indeed created hardships for the Chinese Communist Party, but provided Mao a window to gain control of the party. He cracked down on his political enemies and those loyal to the Kremlin. As the undisputed head of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao could now try and deal with the Soviet Union on a more equal footing, as the Soviets now lacked the influence within the Chinese Communist Party to remove him from office. As World War II came to an end, Stalin cut a separate treaty with the Nationalists while trying to compel Mao to reach a peace with Chiang Kai-shek. As the Cold War heated up, though, Stalin changed track and moved to support Mao in the fight against the Nationalists. Soviet arms and technical support were critical elements in Mao's victory over the Nationalists and in his unification of the nation. Nevertheless, unlike the communist regimes of Eastern Europe, minus Yugoslavia and Albania, the Chinese Communist Party was not beholden to the Red Army. Their revolution was indigenous, making them feel far more confident in their negotiations with Moscow versus the communist parties of Eastern Europe. Despite Mao's victory and his greater autonomy from Moscow, the Soviets still clung to their czarist claims in northern China. Stalin was primarily interested in natural resources in China and in access to Chinese warm water ports. Stalin also wanted to secure the independence of Mongolia as a buffer state. The Soviet ambassador to China during the period was Pavel Undin. He was well known for his mastery of official ideology and was well liked by Stalin. Preoccupied with Marxist ideology, Undin was oblivious to Russia's imperial past and Chinese sensitivity to the subject. The Soviet Union projected itself as a post-imperial state, a civic multinational state that transcended national oppression in the name of solidarity. In the Soviet perspective, all borders would eventually disappear and a single global socialist union would appear. In reality, though, Russian culture and history dominated the Soviet Union. Other nationalities were allowed to practice their traditions and were respected, but Russian culture was considered the most progressive and was measured as first among equals. The Russians were viewed as the leading peoples of the socialist world, playing the decisive role in maintaining the friendship of socialist peoples. As a result, Russian heritage continued to shape Soviet policy. In Undin's mind, as well as many other Russians, the Soviet Union as a new ideological state had no connection or responsibility for the actions of the old Tsarist regime. At one point, he even complained to Zhou Enlai about the lack of a monument to General Stefan Markov, the famous Russian explorer and conqueror of the Russian Far East. His insensitivity to China's recent history of colonial exploitation naturally bothered the Chinese. The main driver in building a new Chinese state was the desire to compete with more advanced foreign powers like Russia in order to end its era of poverty, backwardness, and national humiliation. Indeed, Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek, and Mao Zedong had all sought to end the special privileges and concessions of foreign powers in China and the restoration of China as the dominant power in the Far East. Stalin never fully trusted Mao as he reminded him too much of Tito. Both had led successful guerrilla movements to liberate their respective nations. Both were ideologically suspect in Stalin's view, and both engaged and insisted on a level of autonomy and sovereignty via the Soviet Union. Although he had to swallow his pride and deal with Stalin, Mao needed the support of the Soviets to finish off the nationalists on Taiwan. Mao lacked the amphibious equipment and air power to launch his successful cross-channel invasion. Only with Soviet aid could Mao hope to finish off the nationalists once and for all. More importantly, he needed Stalin's help in rebuilding China.
The United States also positioned itself as a nation that could support the People's Republic of China and briefly considered providing economic aid. This, however, was unrealistic on two counts. First, the China lobby and the Republican Congress would never support communist China. Second, Mao considered the United States an imperialist power and far more untrustworthy than the Soviet Union. The United States, if you had recall, supplied his main opponent for years. The U.S. State Department as well feared providing aid to Mao only to have him turn around and sign an alliance with Stalin. Mao did, though, leave diplomatic channels open to the United States. He did this to give the Americans the false impression that he was open to negotiations, keeping them on the sidelines of the Chinese Civil War so as not to tempt them to intervene to save the nationalists. Second, he wanted to use the talks with the United States as potential leverage against Stalin and any future negotiations. He knew Stalin feared another Tito and dreaded China going over to the Americans. Mao, however, believed in the long run the United States would never accept a communist regime in China and would work to undermine it. Like Stalin, Mao believed another world war was likely in another 10 to 15 years between the capitalist world led by the United States and the socialist world led by the Soviet Union. Therefore, in Mao's view, it was necessary to ally with the Soviet Union before the United States or Great Britain were ready to start a war with China. This left Mao dependent on Stalin for help in rebuilding China. China had been racked by decades of civil war and foreign invasions, resulting in the estimated deaths of 56 million Chinese in the period of 1927 to 1949. Chinese heavy industrial production had declined some 70%, light industry by 30%, and agriculture by 24.5%. The annual production of coal was a mere 3,243 tons, iron and steel only 150,000 tons. The transportation system was hardly functioning. 5,000 miles of railroad were crippled, 3,200 bridges and 200 tunnels were heavily damaged. Starvation, hunger, and disease swept the countryside, and inflation remained severe despite the communist victory. The most difficult challenge was the regime's lack of bureaucrats and the party's lack of experience in handling economic affairs. The Chinese Communist Party was no longer an opposition party operating in the wilderness. It was now running the most populous state in the world. It had to build up political and administrative institutions and to learn to deal with industry, commerce, communications, education, and culture, which called for skills and techniques in short supply in China. On July the 1st, 1949, Mao announced to the world that he would lean to one side, that side being the Soviet Union. Lao Shaoxi to Moscow to pledge his loyalty to Stalin's leadership of world socialism and requested a meeting between the two leaders. After much delay, Stalin agreed to the, such a meeting and Mao traveled to Moscow. Mao wanted a new treaty of alliance and did not want to abide by the treaty of friendship signed between the nationalists and the Soviets. Stalin was hesitant to abandon his treaty, but eventually agreed to a new treaty. Stalin needed China in the socialist camp for the coming world war between the capitalists and the socialists he saw coming. Moreover, having China as an ally would greatly enhance Soviet influence in Asia and further secure the Soviet Union's eastern border. Mao had to accept many of the provisions of the old treaty, and he did not receive Stalin's aid in invading Taiwan, but he did get Stalin's support in helping to rebuild China. In February 1950, China and the Soviet Union signed a 30-year tr treaty of friendship and alliance and mutual assistance. In the new treaty, the Soviets and Chinese created a number of state-owned joint ventures to mine for precious metals, minerals, drill for oil, and to build and repair ships. The Soviets agreed to provide $300 million in credits at a 1% interest rate over five years. They also agreed to send an initial consignment of 50 engineers, 52 technicians, and 220 other advisors in everything from finance and education to culture and transportation. 
The Soviets furthermore agreed to help with 50 different construction projects, in addition to accepting more students from China to study in the Soviet Union. The Chinese Communist Party would recognize Russia's right to station forces at Port Arthur and recognized Outer Mongolia's independence, for they would not seek compensation for the Soviet theft of machinery and industry from Manchuria. One also announced that the Soviet Union would transfer the Southern Manchurian Railroad to China as well as withdraw Soviet forces from Port Arthur no later than 1952. Despite the treaty, Stalin also propped up the North Korean regime under Kim Il-sung as another communist party in Asia to balance off China, giving him the green light to invade South Korea and the mistaken belief that the United States wouldn't respond. When the UN intervened with American leadership and the war turned against the North Koreans, China agreed to intervene to save the North Korean regime at the request of the Soviets. Resorting to military action in Korea was the last major diplomatic decision made by Stalin. The decision to send Chinese forces to rescue the North Koreans was Mao's first major policy decision as the head of the People's Republic of China, which would have a fundamental impact on the future of China and the region for decades. The U.S. responded to the Sino-Soviet alliance with a policy of non-recognition, diplomatic isolation, sanctions, and later total economic embargo. American officials felt that the defeat of the nationalists and the establishment of the communist China represented a great setback to American policy in the region and its efforts to contain communism. The United States had invested in China since the late 19th century, developing the region through economic investment, missionary work, and charities. There was a popular perception that China, with its huge population and latent industrial development, was a huge economic opportunity for American companies. Moreover, America invested $2 billion into the former nationalist regime. The administration concluded in 1949 that they had been blind to the realities of the situation in China and had bet in the wrong horse in the Chinese Civil War. The new plan would be for the United States to lure China to work with it. Chinese trade for America was insignificant. Yet the United States assumed that Mao would need American funds and expertise in the long run if he wanted to rebuild his nation. Truman also assumed that Mao was more of a nationalist in his outlook versus a socialist and could be another Tito. If the Chinese didn't cooperate, pressure would be applied through diplomatic isolation and economic sanctions to force the Chinese to learn the hard way that they couldn't get along without the West. The Truman administration presumed that China ravaged by war represented a minor security concern. Therefore, the United States would wait for the opportunity to find an opening between the Chinese and the Soviets and split the alliance akin to the break between Stalin and Tito. The U.S. wagered that the Soviet Union wouldn't have the resources to invest in rebuilding China, which would lead China to look elsewhere for capital. If that didn't work, the economic sanctions would undermine the weak Chinese economy, leading to its eventual collapse. Indeed, the United States in the post-war period 1946 to 1948 had become China's largest trading partner, supplying some 48 to 57 percent of its imports and taking 20 to 30 percent of its exports. Therefore, in 1949, the U.S. only allowed limited trade with China on a cash basis, excluding certain materials similar to the restrictions placed on the Soviet Union and communist bloc nations. The U.S. investment in China was comparatively small to Chinese dependency on the United States. Nevertheless, despite these sanctions, by 1950, Chinese trade levels returned to their 1946 levels. This policy soon came tumbling down, though, as the Korean War began and China joined the war that November, surprising the United Nations forces and driving them back down the peninsula. China went from a minor threat to an expanding power directly involved in the Korean War and supporting the Viet Minh and French Indochina. The U.S. ended all trade with China and decided to impose a total economic embargo 
against China and pressured American allies to take part. Many argued the embargo would cripple the Chinese economy as China's coastal cities were heavily dependent on trade. Others were not convinced and argued that given China's rural nature, the embargo would have very little effect on China's war policy. Whatever resources China needed would be supplied by the Soviet Union and or Eastern Europe. Moreover, the Chinese army was not mechanized. It was composed primarily of large infantry formations, which did not require petroleum fuels. American allies were not enthusiastic about either sanctions or an embargo of China. Britain most opposed the sanctions. The British Empire was hard up for cash after World War II, and sanctions hurt business in Hong Kong. Starting in 1948, Britain had already began trade with the communist regime, and even with the Korean War, only imposed trade restrictions on some items. Britain feared the full-scale end of trade between China and Hong Kong would result in massive unemployment in Hong Kong and might lead to a Chinese invasion of the colony. It was an open secret that the communist regime allowed Hong Kong to exist because it was a source of access to Western trade and technology that was not available from the communist bloc. If that trade disappeared, nothing would stop China from expelling the British from Hong Kong. The small British garrison stood little chance of halting a Chinese invasion. Britain at one point even warned the United States that if it lost Hong Kong, it would hold the United States responsible. How to enforce the UN embargo against China remained a paradoxical challenge for the Truman administration. India, Burma, and Pakistan were opposed to the sanctions and operated as middlemen trading with China and Western nations. A large number of non-communist ships continued carrying goods to China even after the UN embargo, especially Greek, British, and Panamanian ships. Later, a full-scale blockade of China was proposed, but the Pentagon vetoed the plan for lack of ships and the potential of escalation. Stopping Soviet or Eastern European vessels from entering China could be considered an act of war. The United States had gone to war under similar circumstances in World War I in protest to the German submarine blockade of Great Britain. Moreover, it was unclear if even America's allies would support such a move. The majority of the members of the United Nations did, though, comply with the embargo. Greek and Panamanian authorities also cracked down on ships and companies trading with China in violation of the embargo. By the summer of 1951, there was a significant decrease in the ships with Western flags transporting strategic materials to China through Hong Kong. As a result, China suffered from a lack of petroleum for civilian use and a lack of raw cotton, which affected the textile industry and increased the inflationary pressures in China. Another severe blow to China was the seizure of their assets by the United States and Japan, worth a total of $27 million. China's trade with Western Europe became increasingly difficult. The Chinese Communist Party had no other choice but to rely more on the communist bloc for goods they needed. The Chinese Communist Party did not believe that the U.S. sanctions were a bad thing because it would help boost the people's sentiments against the West and give the Chinese Communist Party time to eliminate pro-Western elements in China. China was able to obtain a large amount of war materials and non-military goods from the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Hong Kong and Macau also remained vital routes for trade and smuggling that kept the regime afloat. Mao wanted to, quote, sweep the house clean first and then receive guests. The Chinese Communist Party was not in a hurry to seek diplomatic recognition from the West. In its calculation, it was the United States and the British that should be anxious to form diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. The Chinese Communist Party believed that China would in the end survive and even thrive under Western economic pressure. After the armistice in 1953, following the Korean War, America continued its embargo of China. As the new Eisenhower administration believed that the economic sanctions remained the best possible weapon against China in the long run to weaken the regime. 
although many, the president included, believe the embargo is having the opposite effect. The first Taiwan Straits crisis, 1954 to 1955, tied his hands, though, from de-escalating the sanctions as it empowered the China lobby and the China hawks in Congress. Those in favor of the embargo contended that, although not weakening the regime, it slowed down China's expansion and estimated that the embargo cost China $200 million a year. Moreover, what was the alternative to sanctions in the long run? By 1955, though, the French and British were questioning the continuation of the embargo. The fighting in Korea had ceased over two years ago, and a peace had been signed in Indochina. The embargo was costing the British in trade and revenue and resulting in unemployment in Hong Kong. Japan, too, wanted to explore trade opportunities with China, a huge potential market. They argued that the embargo had been ineffective in weakening the regime or changing Beijing's attitudes towards the West. Ultimately, the UN embargo against China collapsed, though the United States continued trade sanctions against China. Take a moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the costs of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the costs of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like our episodes on geopolitics and alliances, like this episode or episode on the NATO alliance, please consider helping us by making a donation through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. A financial position to make a contribution? Please help us by spreading the word. Give us a positive review on iTunes or share your favorite episodes on social media. Believe it or not, it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. China never received the same level of aid from the Soviet Union as Eastern Europe. This was for a few reasons. Stalin was always reluctant to loan the Chinese money. Mao also saw loans as debts to be paid back as soon as possible. Mao, although he needed help, didn't want to be too far in debt to Russia, fearing a loss of sovereignty. The Korean War deepened the alliance between Moscow and Beijing, though. Mao risked everything in sending his forces to fight in Korea. He had not prepared for the war and had not been informed by either Kim or Stalin about the invasion of South Korea. The Socialist Bloc and the Soviet Union provided the supplies for China to fight the Americans and secretly dispatched Soviet fighter jets to provide air cover, building up trust and cooperation between the two powers. After the war, the Chinese Communist Party's leadership, similar to Soviet development, wanted to concentrate on reconstruction of energy, machinery, and defense industries. Despite their differences, both the Soviet Union and China held similar beliefs around developing societies through centralized state planning. Socialist Europeans and Chinese shared a belief in the crucial importance of a technically trained and a politically reliable intelligentsia to run the country. The rural nature of the Chinese Communist Party had made them ill-prepared for administering the large cities of China, and the Chinese turned to the Soviets and Eastern Europeans for help. Indeed, 70 to 80 percent of the Chinese Communist Party cadres were illiterate, coming from poor peasant families. The number of technical staff in the entire workforce had fallen to 0.24 percent of the workforce after the Civil War. The bureaucrats they inherited from the nationalist and the Ch Japanese POW experts they had impressed to work for them were politically unreliable and untrustworthy. They were strongly pro-American and pro-British, especially in the financial and banking sector. The Chinese government worked hard to train up a new bureaucracy, organizing classes and technical schools and sending students to the Soviet Union. The party launched a five-year program to teach their rank-and-file members how to read and write. 
Nevertheless, the lack of expertise persisted for decades. Due to the lack of technical expertise, the Chinese government was even unable to compile the list of China's specific needs for Soviet economic aid. The Chinese army, despite its bravery in the Korean War, was primarily an infantry force. They were poorly equipped and trained with very few artillery and mechanized units. They had no real air force to speak of, and the Navy consisted of poorly equipped gunboats from the 19th century that were more floating museums versus fighting vessels. Even with new weapons, ships, and planes, and tanks from the Soviets, they lacked the training to operate them. Among the 152,000 officers, only 2% had college education, 12% had graduated from high school, and 27.2% were totally illiterate. Technocrats are crucial figures in a centrally planned economy. They provide not only the knowledge and expertise, but also leadership and guidance to society and the state. Their role extended from matters of culture, property, and behavior, where guidance was required to facilitate the transformation of a society into a socialist society. Soviet and Eastern Bloc advisors sought to replicate themselves in China and found many enthusiastic Chinese state builders willing to emulate them. Quote, backwardness wasn't just an insult or a catchphrase during the era. It was a real economic challenge, more akin to underdevelopment in our contemporary lexicon. State planners in both China and the Soviet Union constructed vast learning societies designed to address problems that were obvious and evident in everyday forms of culture and behavior. The Chinese were generally thankful to the Soviets and the Eastern Europeans for their technical training and advice. The Chinese often pushed their socialist allies for more advisors complaining openly about the low cultural level of their own cadres. The death of Stalin in 1953 meant an overall change not only in the Soviet Union, but in the wider socialist global alliance. The model of confrontation and anticipated future war as foresaw by Stalin was replaced with a policy of economic and technical competition with the West. It was believed that the socialist world could outcompete the, the capitalist world scientifically and economically in the long run, achieving higher standards of living, which in turn would undermine the appeal of capitalism. Capitalism would collapse under its own contradictions, and the socialist world would gain a comparative technological advantage, as capitalist societies slowly disappeared over time. Having sacrificed a great deal in Korea, the Chinese Communist Party believed that China deserved more favorable aid from the Soviet Union, as the Soviets owed them for the intervention in Korea. More interestingly, Beijing felt that China's intervention should have won them respect of the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev, the new Soviet leader, was keen on developing the relationship between the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union. He increased aid to China, and in March 1953, another 91 Soviet aid projects were announced, followed by another 15 in October 1954, for a total of 156 projects over the next five years. The Soviet Union also accepted more Chinese college applicants and top Soviet universities. In late 1954, Khrushchev took one of his first trips as the new Soviet leader to China and financed 15 new projects to aid China's energy and industry sectors. In March 1955, 16 more projects to upgrade Chinese defenses and shipbuilding industries were added. Moscow also helped to construct an additional 116 industrial plants with equipment supplied from Eastern Europe. Khrushchev also turned over all the joint Sino-Soviet companies to Chinese ownership and withdrew Soviet forces from Port Arthur. Thousands of more advisors were also dispatched to China from the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Most, but not all, of the advisors that arrived in China from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union were mid- to high-ranking members of the Communist Party and represented some of the best human technical talent in the socialist world. 
Indeed, Soviet advisors had been operating in China since the 1920s, and in late 1948, a considerable number of Soviet technicians had been dispatched to help rebuild the railroads. Indeed, before Mao declared the People's Republic of China in October 1949, there were already 600 Soviet experts in China. In all, around 10,000 experts would travel to China in the 1950s. Between 1958 and 1960 alone, the Soviet Union sent 915 advisors. In China, these advisors enjoyed a high standard of living, normally reserved for high-ranking members of the Chinese Communist Party. They were allowed access to holiday cities like Qingdao and Lushan, special schools for their children, and special friendship stores which held high-quality goods and were off-limits to most Chinese. Like many colonial administrators of the 19th century, they were from respectable families, both dependent on the state for their privilege and status and critical to China's administration and projects. The overarching goal of these advisors was to facilitate bloc cohesion and unity transcending the regional borders in the creation of a transnational organizations and institutions. Soviet and Eastern European advisors often kept detailed journals of their time in China reporting back home making suggestions around current collaboration, proposed projects, and future forms of exchange. This pattern was followed by Polish pianists on a one-month visit to Shanghai and by mechanical engineers on a two-year assignment to build a bridge in Wuhan. The Eastern Europeans would become an important yet silent player in this relationship between the Soviet Union and China. As small vassal states of the Soviet Empire, they had made a series of compromises that allowed them an important role within the socialist world. Eastern Europe possessed a highly educated population in relations to the Soviet Union and China with expertise in manufacturing and science, which they sought to leverage in the new context of the Cold War. They looked to become a conduit with the West for technology transferred and lobbied for a more socially progressive communism. The Eastern Europeans thus became crucial in the race to catch up with and overtake the West. Both the Soviets and the Chinese were highly interested in leveraging the technical know-how of the Eastern Europeans and building up their countries. The Chinese especially admired Czech and East German technological advice and admired the stability of their regimes in the face of political instability in 1956. The Chinese soon discovered that the real source of industrial expertise in the socialist world were the East Germans, Czechs, Hungarians, and Poles. Moreover, the Chinese were sympathetic to Eastern European claims of Soviet great power chauvinism. Historically, trade between Eastern Europe and China had been small, given the geographical distances and the geopolitical instability of the two regions in recent times. But by 1953, 70% of Chinese foreign trade was conducted with Eastern Europe. The Czechs exported to China construction material, machinery, trucks, cars, telecommunications equipment, and other goods. China provided iron ore, rare metals, oil, wool, leather, tobacco, fish, and agricultural products. The East Germans sent optical equipment, radios, cement and sugar processing equipment. Bulgaria sold electrical equipment. Eastern Europe also supplied China with important supplies during the Korean War, including 100 aircraft, spare parts, engines, and 90 million rounds of ammunition. Eastern Europeans also helped to establish China's telecommunications infrastructure and postal network. By 1958, telegraph communication had been established between Warsaw and Beijing whereas Moscow, Beijing, and Shanghai had established radio and telephone lines. One of the biggest hindrances of this aid was the need to coordinate with and through Moscow. Soviet ministers and officials were often unresponsive to Chinese and Eastern European requests for information, and it was difficult to coordinate on projects. Many times, Soviet officials appeared to be incapable of coordinating communication and exchanges. They often appeared not even interested in doing so. 
Both Eastern Europeans and Chinese found the Soviet bureaucracy mystifying and infuriating. East German scholars complained it was easier for them to get Soviet books from West Germany than directly from the Soviet Union. Czechs experts arrived in Russia looking to address practical issues around cost-cutting, planning, and production problems, but found themselves in boring theoretical seminars about socialist property. Nevertheless, despite the technical leverage of Eastern Europe or the rising influence of the Chinese, the Soviet Union was the clear capital of the socialist world, which stretched from Central Europe and the West to the Pacific and the East and South to the borders of French Indochina. The Soviets functioned as administrators of their allies and patron states, inviting their indigenous administrative elites to the Soviet Union for vacations at fancy resorts on the outskirts of Moscow or, or at Sochi along the Black Sea. Others traveled to Russia for special medical treatment at privileged hospitals like Maurice Thorez of the French Communist Party in 1950. While in the Soviet Union, they often mingled and socialized with party and state officials from other socialist states. Leftist figures from around the world also vacationed in Russia, such as the East German writer Gunter Simon or the wife of the Mongolian Minister of Internal Affairs, as well as leaders of Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Cameroon, and Finland, to name a few. Sometimes leading socialist families even intermarried, such as Stalin's daughter who married an Indian communist leader until his death in 1966. The Chinese leadership also traveled to Russia and became a part of the wider socialist circle. Liu Xiaoxi's son studied in the Soviet Union, earned a PhD in chemistry from Moscow University, became a Soviet citizen, and married a Russian wife. 1956 marked a turning point in the socialist world. Khrushchev announced the beginning of major reforms through desalinization, which in turn led to a weakening of Soviet domination in Eastern Europe, as illustrated by the Hungarian uprising and friction with Poland. Many in Eastern Europe saw China as a possible balance to the Soviet Union's influence in the socialist world. China gained a certain amount of credibility and self-confidence for battling the Americans during the Korean War. A lot of people saw them as a, not a minor ally of the Soviet Union, but a growing equal, which shaped Beijing's attitudes on both domestic and foreign issues. Indeed, China had been a major participant at the Geneva Peace Summit, working with the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and France to end the war in French Indochina. Yet Mao decided to stay loyal to Moscow, backing Russia's leadership of the socialist world. Mao and the Chinese could have used the chaos in 1956 as spoilers. Khrushchev's leadership of the Soviet Union was shaky as a result of de-Stalinization, and China very easily could have challenged Moscow for the leadership of the communist world. Most Soviet citizens who had grown up idolizing Stalin found de-Stalinization at best confusing and at worst clung to his cult of personality. Soviet party officials were engaged in a dangerous and confusing effort to explain and educate the citizenry about the nature of the problem and the significance of the criticism. However, by opening up Stalin to criticism, Khrushchev inadvertently opened the whole Soviet system up to questioning. Different kinds of reformers, dissidents, and intellectuals, even workers, posed frank and critical questions about Soviet rule throughout the, co the communist bloc, especially in Poland and Hungary, which surprised many in the socialist world. Mao was initially supportive of the criticism against Stalin. He himself had felt slighted by Stalin on more than a few occasions. Indeed, unlike the regimes in Eastern Europe, China's political legacy was not dependent on Stalin and the Red Army, so he had very little to fear from de-Stalinization. Nevertheless, Mao felt that disunity in the communist world was dangerous in the face of the imperialist West. Moreover, Mao distrusted Hungary's student demonstrators who called for open elections and freedom of the press. Mao saw this as a first step towards the reintroduction of capitalism in Hungary. 
Loyalty to Moscow through the crisis of 1956 paid dividends as Khrushchev accelerated the transfer of nuclear technology to China. Initially, Soviet advisors had been reluctant in sharing nuclear technology with China as they believed it was too complicated and expensive for Chinese scientists to master. In 1954, though, China discovered uranium deposits and the Soviets agreed to exchange peaceful nuclear technology in exchange for access to Chinese uranium. In 1955, though, Mao announced that China's intentions to build its own atomic bomb, and $15 million was allocated for the project. Grateful for Mao's support through 1956, Khrushchev rewarded the Chinese with the technical knowledge around building the atomic bomb. Khrushchev also helped Mao with the delivery system, assisting Chinese missile development and providing them R-2 rockets, obsolete Russian copies of the V-1 German rocket. The events of 1956 and the Hungarian uprising had a lasting impact on the socialist world. The Czechs and East Germans continued to worry about the Hungarians and the Poles. The Chinese worried about the Eastern Europeans in general, as did the Vietnamese who wanted to carry favor with China, and the Soviets worried about everyone and the survival of the socialist bloc. By the late 1950s, both sides had benefited from the alliance and wanted to continue, but a number of factors contributed to the eventual split between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. The personal idiosyncrasies of both Mao and Khrushchev, along with the cultural, racial, and domestic factors, eroded and eventually split the alliance. Mao and Khrushchev were both larger-than-life figures and were known for their hyperbolic statements. As with any marriage, one of the big factors in, a, in the break between the Soviets and Chinese was disagreement over finances. Advisor pay and financial responsibility for their work was always a source of tension between the Soviets, Eastern Europeans, and Chinese. The Soviets saw their advisors as a source of intellectual and human capital on loan to China as a gift. Soviet advisors were still employed by the respective ministries while advising in China. Sending them to China and Eastern Europe was seen as a key part of Soviet aid. Hence, ministries at home frequently complained when the Soviet foreign ministry dispatched advisors to China. It should be remembered the Soviet Union was still rebuilding the nation after the devastation of World War II. Therefore, China, like other Eastern Bloc nations, was compelled to provide compensation to various Soviet ministries, as well as covering the cost of their salary, transportation, supplies, necessary equipment, housing, medical aid, and translators while in China. Soviet workers in China were also provided a month-paid vacation by the Chinese and were exempt from paying Chinese taxes. If a project fell behind schedule, the Chinese were obligated to cover the costs. Soviet experts were paid far more than their Chinese counterparts. The Soviet manager at Chongqing Automobile Factory, for example, earned twice the salary of the Chinese manager. Russian professors made more than their Chinese counterparts at Beijing University and were housed in style at Beijing International Hotel. Soviet talk of gifts and internationalism confused the Chinese when in actuality the services they were offering were not free of charge. China paid on average two to 4,000 won a month per Soviet advisor. Oddly enough, the Soviets even asked the Chinese for payment in American dollars, a clear reminder to the Chinese about the true source of economic power in the world. China didn't want to pay in dollars and wanted to pay Soviet experts at the same rate as Chinese experts, but in the end agreed to Soviet demands. Soviets were not shy about presenting the bill to the Chinese either. Every six months, the Soviet Ministry of Finance informed the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the monthly bill to be paid back to the Soviet Union complete with bank account numbers for the respective Soviet ministries. Fraternal Brotherhood of Socialism or not, bills had to get paid. In 1956, though, the Chinese refused to pay the expenses of Soviet advisors they had not requested. 
as they realized that they were just financing some exotic vacations for a few mid-level Soviet bureaucrats. They also cracked down on expense reports submitted by Soviet advisors, who often submitted inflated receipts. The Soviets, though, were determined to not give an inch. They felt their experts deserved more money, better conditions, and more respect. The Chinese also lowered the value of the yuan against the ruble in 1957 from 1 to 1 to 2 to 1 to offset the cost of Soviet goods and services while making their own goods more competitive on the Russian market. The Chinese, likewise, were upset that the Russians didn't take the same level of interest in Chinese culture and achievements that China took in studying and learning about the Soviet Union. The Russians considered their values as universal and applicable anywhere in the world. Many Russians saw China as another vassal in their vast empire. The Soviet military also did not pay much attention to Chinese sovereignty. The Soviet army and air force regularly crossed into Chinese territory. Moscow even planned on incorporating China's coastal defenses into its East Asian security system, along with basing Soviet subs in Chinese ports, without consulting the Chinese. This deeply angered Mao, who said that the alliance had become a father-son or cat-mice relationship. The advisors deployed to China were not always the most qualified or disciplined either. Soviet advisors sometimes drank too much, didn't show up for work, or even attracted the attention of the police. One advisor even murdered his wife while intoxicated. Of the 466 Soviet Air Force advisors sent to China in 1951, 82 were sent home for drunkenness, immoral behavior, and inappropriate liaisons with foreigners. The Navy was even worse. The Russian Navy was notorious for its drunken misbehavior of marauding bands. They insulted the police, stole goods, destroyed restaurants, and bought goods from Japan to resell in the Soviet Union. Cases of rape and murder were not uncommon. The Chinese were far from victims of the alliance and contributed to the failure. The Chinese would sometimes invite the wrong experts to work in China, or Soviet experts would arrive with nothing to do because the construction or project was delayed, leaving the advisors to sit around or just turn around and travel home. In their pursuit of self-reliance, they copied Soviet blueprints without compensating the Soviet Union for their technical knowledge, what today is known as intellectual property theft. Indeed, the exchange of industrial blueprints became a focal point of contention between the two nations. Of the 8,547 diverse sets of blueprints that were provided to the Chinese between October 1954 and June 1961, priced at 9.2 million rubles, of which the Chinese only paid 1,050 rubles. However, despite the Chinese lack of payment, many of these blueprints were of poor or mediocre quality. Soviet managers and technicians had very little incentive to provide quality blueprints and often produced shoddy technical documents, which justifiably angered the Chinese. Indeed, by the late 1950s, the Chinese were convinced that the Soviets had been taking advantage of them selling them fake blueprints. Even the successes of the alliance bred some resentments. Soviet advisors played an important role in drafting the first Chinese five-year plan. The plan actually achieved some successes. In 1957, steel production reached 5.3 million tons, iron 5.8 million, 130 million tons of coal were produced, and 19.3 billion kilowatts of electricity. Mao anticipated that China was not far behind the United States in iron and steel production and would be a major industrial power in a few years. By comparison, to illustrate Mao's misunderstanding of how far behind China was the United States, in 1957, the United States produced 100 million tons of steel, and the British uh, steel produced was 21.7 million tons. Mao nevertheless announced in his visit to Moscow in 1957 that China would overtake Britain in the next 15 years and would soon overtake the United States. 
Moscow justifiably doubted Beijing's aspirations, which angered the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Mao, in particular, was bothered by Soviet skepticism about China's successes. He believed that Moscow harbored an unnecessary fear that an industrialized China would challenge Soviet leadership in the socialist world. In reality, the moderate success of the five-year plan fueled Mao's irrationality and his dreamlike aspirations of the Great Leap Forward. Despite the chaos of the Great Leap Forward and the obvious economic damage it was having, the Soviets for the most part kept quiet. They knew the United States was hoping for a split between the two nations and didn't want to leave an opening for the Americans. In part, though, the Chinese kept the Soviets in the dark about the real extent of the damage. From the Soviet perspective, if they were going to catch up with and surpass the West, they would need access to Western technology. China, with its policy of confrontation over the Taiwan Strait, preaching of national liberation and backward economic policies, stood in the way of that effort. Another element of disagreement in the relationship was nuclear weapons. After the death of Stalin, Khrushchev was quite worried about the prospects of a nuclear war with the West. Mao, in contrast, routinely made provocative statements about the West and famously called America's nuclear weapons paper tigers, designed only to frighten the people of the socialist world. Mao argued that in the event of a nuclear war, the socialist world would win, given their superior numbers. Mao argued that the Chinese could withstand at least 100 million casualties or more, and by 1958, Khrushchev pulled back on his aid to help the Chinese build the bomb. Khrushchev tried to argue that the Chinese had no need for nuclear weapons as they were protected under the Soviet nuclear umbrella. In reality, he feared Mao might use the weapons without consulting the Soviets, resulting in a nuclear war with the West. Moreover, as relations declined, Khrushchev feared having a nuclear-armed China on his eastern border. The Chinese, in contrast, felt abandoned by Khrushchev's policy of rapprochement with the West, despite their sacrifices in the Korean War and support for the Soviets in 1956. Khrushchev also angered Mao by proposing that China focus on becoming an agricultural base for the socialist world versus becoming an industrialized power like the Soviet Union. Additionally, he advised Mao to acknowledge the nationalist government on Taiwan in order to avoid further military confrontation with the United States. Mao, though, ignored Khrushchev's advice and initiated the second Taiwan Strait crisis in 1958 to demonstrate to the Soviets China's sovereignty, keeping the Soviets in the dark about its military actions. After the outbreak of the crisis, Moscow was keenly concerned about the mounting tensions between the United States and China. Mao and Zhou Enlai made it clear to Moscow that their objective in the crisis was to pressure the United States to end its support of the nationalist regime in Taiwan. They told the Soviets that if it came to nuclear war, China would bear the consequences alone. When the Soviets offered China public support and the protection of the Soviet nuclear umbrella, China declined. This move enraged Khrushchev as he believed he should have been consulted regarding the Chinese military actions. As allies, the Soviet Union would have to share the responsibility of Chinese actions on the world stage. Khrushchev was irritated and embarrassed. Khrushchev was further angered when the Chinese came into possession of a sidewinder American missile as a result of their crisis and refused to share the missile with them, despite all the technology that the Soviets had shared with the Chinese over the last decade. Khrushchev responded by halting all aid to China and their missile development. In October 1959, Khrushchev traveled to Beijing to patch things up. He tried to convince Mao to take a moderate path on Taiwan and push for China to accept his detente with the United States. Becoming angry and annoyed with Khrushchev, Mao called him a, quote, time server and accused Moscow of trying to dominate China. Khrushchev shouted back that Mao intended to subordinate him. 
Mao said that given Khrushchev's limited knowledge of Marxist-Leninism, the ultimate insult to a Marxist leader, he was being deceived by the imperialist. Soviet leaders, growing embittered, prepared a Central Committee report in which Khrushchev criticized Mao for developing a cult of personality, for portraying himself as a genius and the final ineffable incarnation of Marxist thought. Khrushchev said every time he spoke with Mao, it reminded him of speaking with Stalin. Things only grew worse when Mao responded publicly in February 1960, declaring that Khrushchev was an opportunist, revisionist who had betrayed Lenin. In response, Khrushchev publicly denounced the Chinese Communist Party at the Budapest Gathering of Communist States that June. On July 16, 1960, the Soviet embassy notified the Chinese foreign ministry that all Soviet experts would be immediately returning home because of poor treatment. Without waiting for a response, they ordered all their personnel home by September the 1st. Moscow terminated 12 agreements on aid and over 200 cooperative projects on science and technology. Although furious, Chinese leaders attempted to minimize the damage. Beijing asked Moscow to reconsider its decision or at least to allow the experts to stay until their contracts expired, arguing the Sino-Soviet split would only benefit Washington. Soviet ambassador and vice premier Chin Yi attempted to patch up the alliance. Seeing no change in policy, though, the Chinese hardened their position, accusing Moscow of violating international law and declared that China would not be blackmailed or intimidated by socialist imperialists. Loss of Soviet aid severely damaged the Chinese economy, but Dao Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai saw it as an opportunity for China to achieve self-reliance. When the Soviets attempted to improve relations by providing aid during the famine of the Great Leap Forward, Mao declined their offer. Instead, Mao somehow found the money to pay the Soviets two years in advance on their debt. By 1962, the Chinese considered the Soviets evil, and the Soviets considered the Chinese closed-minded, stubborn, and ungrateful. The actual aid amount provided from the Soviet Union to China is debated, but by Soviet estimates, they provided some $3.4 billion in aid between 1946 and 1960 to China. This figure does not include the cost of advisors and stipends to Chinese students studying in the Soviet Union. In terms of measuring outcomes, Soviet advisors were able to boost Chinese coal production by 60% by 1952. Similar gains were made in oil production, irrigation, forestry, livestock, mechanical engineering, and railway production. Significant portions of the Chinese automobile, truck, hydroelectric, and weapons industry were the result of Soviet aid and investment. The CIA estimated that the Soviet Union loaned some $1.3 billion to the Chinese over the course of the 1950s, of which 430 was spent on economic development and the rest on the Chinese military. The Soviets also laid the groundwork for the Chinese nuclear program, and although their withdrawal of technical support created problems, it just delayed the, the inevitable, which occurred on October the 16th, 1964, when China detonated its first atomic bomb. As we have seen, though, this aid wasn't completely free of charge. Moreover, there is the question of the overall value of this aid and the advice. The Chinese were essentially locked into a closed market, without access to Western aid and advice. The Soviets had the ability to set prices at will. Chinese officials argued that the Soviets inflated the value of their blueprints by some 8%. They also argued that the Soviets undervalued Chinese mineral exports to the Soviet Union. Mao suspected that the Soviets were taking advantage of the Chinese and dumping overpriced manufactured goods on the Chinese market. Mao overestimated the importance of the Chinese market for Soviet and Eastern European manufacturers and overestimated the value of agricultural goods and raw materials shipped to the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. In part, the financial dispute between the Soviet Union and China was an inevitable side effect of socialist planned economies. 
Prices did not represent information about supply and demand, but instead was determined arbitrarily in a way that could be interpreted as advantageous to one party over another. Another challenge inherent to the socialist economic system was disagreements over the economic plan. The Chinese complained that certain socialist bloc goods were inappropriate for their needs and would often change their economic development plan without informing their Eastern European suppliers. The Chinese were insensitive to the damage and confusion such changes made on Eastern European economic planning. For example, in 1956, the Czechs had put considerable funds and efforts into preparing equipment, blueprints, and material for electric generators and factories in China, and when the Chinese announced that they would scale back the project by some 18% without informing the Czechs beforehand, the chaos of the Great Leap Forward, 1958 to 1959, further damaged relations as Chinese import of tractors fell from some 11,500 to 5,235, with a similar decline in automobiles, construction equipment, buses, and other goods. By the late 1950s, Eastern Europeans and Soviets wondered what real value China really brought to the communist bloc. China was a huge, underdeveloped agrarian economy. Investing the bloc's limited resources in China would, would make it even more difficult to catch up to and surpass the West. At best, China was a promise of future potential rather than specific gains. Ideologically as well, China was moving in a different direction from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, which frankly scared them and reminded them of the Stalinism they had just rebuked. By 1958, the Chinese were openly challenging the merits of Soviet socialism and argued in favor of reliance on masses versus technocratic expertise and the development of China. The Eastern Europeans quickly recoiled from China as the Chinese were no longer seen as a force of stability and balance, but the exact opposite, instability and political chaos. Indeed, Mao had a disdain for intellectuals as he considered them the petty bourgeoisie. In 1949, he had announced that the Chinese had to learn from experts, no matter what their backgrounds, to rebuild the economy. Mao assumed this process would last two to five years before the communists could manage the economy on their own. By late 1956, Mao had mistakenly believed that there was little more they could learn from the Russians and Eastern Europeans. The events of 1956 sparked much thought in the socialist world in an attempt to understand what happened. The Chinese Communist Party came away from the events believing that the Hungarian youth and intelligentsia had not been fully indoctrinated in socialism, which had long-term consequences in terms of its influence on the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s and 70s. Hence, in the Chinese view, the socialist bloc's attention to standards of living and catching up with the West was in essence emulating the greedy consumerism of Western capitalism and undermining socialism. Eastern European and Soviet youths were traveling to the Yugoslavia and the West. They were preoccupied with Western fashion, Western culture, and preferred to watch love movies from Poland versus Chinese movies dedicated to class struggle. Moreover, Soviet leadership exacerbated these issues in the Chinese perspective when they traveled to the West and attempted to visit Disneyland like Khrushchev in 1959. In the end, despite the advantages each received from the alliance, both were slowly moving in different ideological directions after the death of Stalin. The Soviet Union and Eastern Europe sought to develop a socially progressive, technological, socialist consumer state. China and Mao wanted to create a revolutionary state moving closer to a classless society in an attempt to reach Marx's utopian communism. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. It's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. 
If you don't have a lot of friends in the history and you're already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.